A Boeing 737-200 has an issue with an unexpected yaw and roll on their approach to Richmond, Virginia. What will happen to the 737? And will they finally solve the mystery of the 737 loss of rudder control? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And I'm Emily. Again. Yay! Yay, we have friends! She's here for the conclusion. Dun-dun-dun! And yes, this will be the conclusion, I promise. We won't leave you on on a cliffhanger this time. Not this time. Some of you may have already looked it up. (laughs) They say that. Yeah. No, I mean it, I promise. But I promise, even if you think you looked it up, I have more information for you. Yeah, Nick's told me, so um, I've watched the Air Disasters episode on these crashes. There is so much stuff that they did not cover. Yeah, apparently. Oh, it's insane. I'm like interested. I'm like invested to know. Yeah, this gets really interesting. But before we do any of that, we're going to do a quick recap of our previous two episodes. That way, if you've been listening to this in sequence, you're not totally lost. You don't have to go back and listen to those. Meaning Nick's going to recap and the rest of us are going to drink. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Okay. What started all of this was on March 3rd of 1991, a 737-200, United Airlines Flight 585, crashed on a very bumpy approach to Colorado Springs from a 17-minute flight from Denver. It crashed less than four miles from the runway after rolling over very suddenly to the right, inverting, pointing nearly nose straight down, and falling 1,000 feet straight down into a park. Killed all 25 people on board, but it avoided all but one minor injury on the ground including narrowly avoiding several people in the park, walking or playing. A lot of speculation followed that, but investigators could not conclusively determine anything to be wrong with the airplane itself. Weather, though very turbulent with a lot of wind shifts and anomalies around the time of the crash, could not be definitively named as the cause of the crash. On December 8th of 1992, the NTSB issued a final report on UA-585, listing the probable cause as undetermined for only the fourth time in its history. But then things got a little more interesting when two years after the release of the report, the report on September 8th of 1994, a 737-300, flying as US Air, US Air 427, crashed on approach to Pittsburgh on its way from Chicago. It crashed just miles from the runway while following another airplane, crossing through the wake turbulence just moments before suddenly rolling to the left out of control, falling over 4,000 feet in just 22 seconds, crashing into a wooded area, killing all 132 people aboard. But missing all all casualty possibilities on the ground because it ended up in a very unpopulated area. After a tough investigation using hazmat suits at the crash site and spending a lot of time investigating possibilities such as bomb on, a bomb on board or intentional crash by the flight crew to electromagnetic interference of the plane's autopilot, the investigators ruled out those possibilities and many more, narrowing the scope to just severe wake turbulence and the rudder's hydraulic servo valve. But almost two years into the investigation of 427, something very strange happened. And that is what we're covering today. Today we're covering Eastwind 517, or their call sign, Stinger 517. <laughs> Eastwind's <laughs> tail had a, a wasp on it, and so their call sign was Stinger 517. This happened on June 9th of 1996. It was a 737-200 with the tail number of November 221 Uniform 
Sierra. This was on a flight from Trenton, New Jersey to Richmond, Virginia. The captain was Brian Bishop, and the first officer was Spencer Griffin. There's actually not much information about their hours or anything because there's no actual report for this incident. Yeah, so the NTSB didn't release a report. They released a narrative. Couldn't they, like, look up those hours after the fact? I mean, it's not that they probably didn't, but it wasn't really pertinent information. And because they didn't do a full report on this incident, there's no need to have that kind of information. Because ultimately, that wouldn't help them determine much. Okay. Most of the flight went completely without issue. As the plane was descending through 5,000 feet on its approach, the crew disengaged the autopilot, and the captain was resting his feet gently on the rudder pedals. He felt a slight kick or bump through the right rudder pedal, but the pedals did not move. He glanced to the first officer to see if he kicked the pedal by accident, but his feet were firmly planted on the ground. He thought nothing of it. While on approach to Richmond at about 10 p.m. local time, the aircraft reached 4,000 feet. All was calm, and the aircraft was on a smooth approach, operating at about 250 knots on a VFR approach, so visual flight rule. So they were operating without the autopilot. They were just doing it by sight because they could see the the airport. Suddenly the airplane yawed hard to the right, followed by a quick roll to about 10 degrees to the right. The captain immediately applied hard opposite rudder and aileron input. This managed to slow the effects of the yaw and the roll, but the rudder pedal was incredibly stiff and nearly impossible to move. He advanced the right throttle, and that seemed to correct the issue for about one to two seconds at a time before the airplane would go back into its aggressive right bank. So he used asymmetric engine steering. Correct. And at points this would cause it to overcorrect to the left up to 15 degrees, which is not a hefty amount of... But it was in the amount of time it would hard over to the left, back to the right. It, it felt like a wild ride to everybody. And they were pretty close to the airport, right, when this happened? They, they were, were relatively on, close, yeah. They were on approach? Yeah, they were on approach. They were pretty close. The flight crew then performed the emergency checklist and declared an emergency to the tower. One of the checklist items was to disengage the yaw damper, which basically, when you're using the, the rudder pedals, or if you're in autopilot mode, it it keeps the rudder from going too far on its limits, because when you're at a high speed... You don't want the rudder to go past more than usually five degrees left or right, because it can cause the airplane to do basically this. Roll. Yes. Roll and be very aggressive. So And invert and crash. So the yaw damper is supposed to dampen the effects of the rudder pedal inputs to no more than those usually five degrees or so. Circling back to the past two flights... One of the rabbit holes investigators went down was investigating the yaw damper, which didn't yield any results, needless right. to say. But curiously enough, on this flight, within seconds of having disengaged the yaw damper, the airplane went back to normal. Hmm. Yep. The flight attendants had heard the thump under their feet at the rear of the airplane just as the plane abruptly yawed and rolled. The incident lasted about 30 seconds, but the flight crew managed to regain control of the airplane and land it safely at Richmond. There was nothing so, but very minor injuries from this incident, which Nobody is died. Nobody died! <laughs> in this case, two super dramatic incidents that killed everybody, and another super dramatic one that didn't kill anybody. And that's why they probably didn't have flight hours, because these pilots still continued to fly after this happened. And it's also why there's no report, because this airplane was not demolished or damaged in any way, shape, or form. And all of its results were in... The reports for 
the two previous flights. Right. It didn't need its own report. Right. Yep. As you will find later, we'll talk a lot about each three of the inc- each of these three incidents. And a lot of the stuff that they cover isn't just one report. Yeah, it which is. Which is very unorganized. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's it's quite the whirlwind of a report. UA 585's report was pretty clear cut and dry because they just didn't know much. It was mysterious. And 427's is very long because they spent a lot more time looking at a few specific things. There's a few curious things that came up with this, though, just based on the information they knew. And that is that the weather was calm and no major rudder inputs were put in. So why did the airplane do this? That's a good question. I didn't even think about that. Yep. Because in the other two incidents, there were mountain rotors on 585, which are heavy mountain winds that come in. Yep. And then there was um, wake turbulence in U.S. Air. Yep, from from trailing another airplane. That wake turbulence causes some really rough air. And both of those things were happening at the time of the incidents for those previous two. So that's really curious. In this one, it was not noted that any weather or major turbulence or anything at all happened during this flight. All right. Investigators from the get-go acknowledged the alarming similarities to UA-585 and U.S. Air 427, but this time they had something they didn't, a pilot alive to tell the story. The pilot recounted his story, describing how the rudder pedals wouldn't actuate even though he was practically standing on them. So, as they had before, investigators took the power control unit dual servo valve to its manufacturer, Parker Hannafin, to test. Can you guess what the result was? It worked perfectly fine. Yep. And, let me guess, there was also shavings in the hydraulic fluid. Good job. (laughs) Yep. Crazy. But then it occurred to one of the investigators, as it hadn't occurred to the NTSB previously, Parker Hannafin did test these in front of them in a lab, at room temperature, with room temperature hydraulic fluid. These are not the conditions that the servo valve is experiencing upon landing. So, four months after the Eastwind 517 incident, investigators proposed running the same test under some different circumstances. They froze the servo valve in dry ice, took it out, and blasted it with nitrogen to simulate the extremely cold atmospheric temperatures. Then, they ran hot hydraulic fluid through it. And guess what freaking happened? It stopped working. It jammed. No one thought of that before? No. No. Okay. (laughs) And it left no scratches or any other indications that it had jammed. It was the perfect crime. They tested the same thing on the previous servo valves from UA-585 and US Air 427, and they both jammed. Yeah. We'll get into this later, but when that jams, it can also cause the rudders the rudder input, to be reverse. Later, an engineer at Boeing discovered in a separate test where he initially pinned the servo valve into a jammed position and then rapidly used the rudder pedals, the servo valve actually over-traveled and reversed. So, during US Air 427, when the first officer was grunting with how hard he was putting pressure on the pedals, he was actually contributing to the roll, but he had absolutely no way of knowing that. Yeah, so the rudder pedals were reversed. So instead of, he was pressing on the right pedal, and he was pressing super, super hard, but they were reversed. So really, he was causing the plane to go left without realizing it. And unfortunately, 
22 seconds of pure chaos and warnings and air traffic control isn't usually a good condition to find yourself in for sorting out that situation. Not at all. Well, and there was no way for them to know that putting pressure on that pedal would have made it worse. And to be honest, because in a pilot's mind, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, how could that even possibly happen? That is the most basic part of the airplane is the flight controls. Those flight controls should be reliable to go in the direction you tell them and for them to be unseemly out of nowhere going in the opposite direction just doesn't make sense in a pilot's mind. It would be the last thing they would probably consider, to be honest. Yep. They would have no... I'm sure they would have probably been thinking, why is it not fixing? I'm pressing so hard on this pedal, and it's not doing anything. Well, it was because when it jammed, it it reversed. And so it was making it roll left more. Mm -hmm. Right, so the actual fix was hit the other pedal, theoretically. (laughs) Yeah, theoretically. if, if they had put their weight on the left rudder pedal for whatever reason they may have been able maybe i mean they were pretty close to the ground um because they were also on approach but they may have been able to fix it so that they were able to turn back over before they inverted i'll get into that right but i mean they they didn't know they didn't know that was the problem and so that's why even though he was pressing the pedal so hard to go right they went left right Now, your next question might be why this wasn't happening to every single 737 in the sky. Prior to 1989, and this is one of the things that the episode didn't mention. The air disasters episode, by the way. The manufacturer assembly drawings did not specify clearances for the diameters between the primary and secondary slides, or the diameters between the secondary slide and the servo valve housing. So, the manufacturer decided to use minimum and maximum clearances of 0.1 and 0.15 thousandths of an inch, respectively. They just decided to do that. So it's a really small tolerance, really small. It's too small for the human eye to see. And basically with these servo valves, it's, I mean, you can picture basically... A, a tube inside a tube inside a tube. A tube inside, a, yeah, it's a three-part piston, basically. There's there's, there's the, the outer housing, tube. The housing, right. The inner tube. The inner... And then the inner tube inside Yeah, that. the actual uh, the inner, mechanism inner that holds the rudder. Yeah, so... In to out, it's the primary valve, the secondary valve, and then the housing. So between the primary and the secondary was 0.1 thousandths of an inch. And then between the secondary and the housing was 0.15 thousandths of an inch is what they were manufacturing it at. Though the drawings, which is what you use to manufacture anything, didn't specifically say what the tolerance should be. So they went with this unbelievably tight tolerance. Yep. On March 14th, 1989... Parker Hannafin released an order that specified the clearances to 0.15 and 0.2 respectively. So it was not as tight as they had previously been using, even though that was just a number that they decided on. So is the reason why that didn't happen to other 737s is because they had it had more room? Yes. So more that than it didn't likely. jam. More Correct. than likely because they didn't have a specified tolerance, there was more tolerance and other servo valves mm-hmm. that kept it from happening. And then materials expand with heat and contract with the cold. So when the valves shrank under cold conditions and then had hot hydraulic fluid running through them, with some metal ships thrown into the mix, 
all three scenarios made the clearance even smaller. So the valves made before 1989 could jam because they were made with these tighter tolerances, and the ones afterwards didn't. When the thermal shock test was performed on a new servo valve straight from the production line, it did not jam. So because the because of such little clearance mm-hmm. on top of stuff condensing, on top of chips, chips, on top of having warm hydraulic fluid, it all just couldn't it couldn't fit is basically what you're telling me. And, exactly. Right. And it's the worst case scenario. The outside was cold while the inside was hot. So the out the inside, the inside expanded. was going out and the inside was going yeah, in. The inside yeah. part expanded into the outside freezing. Versus the other way around would actually put more distance between them. Mm-hmm. So after that, investigators proved for US Air Force twenty seven, based on their simulations, the pilots only would have been able to recover from the upset if they had prior knowledge of the effects of a rudder reversal and the crossover airspeed. Simulations proved that a rudder hardover, coupled with encountering a rotor or a mountain wave gust, produced the best match simulation for UA-585. That's not to say the rotor caused it or contributed to the crash, but to get the best match to the flight data recorder, a rotor would have had to take place. So, wasn't a, this caused it, but it wouldn't have crashed the way it did without the rotor. It was part of... Yeah. This, it was a recipe of things that happened. Yep. And because that was there, it probably contributed to the crash. Yeah. So yep. that's what all the simulations showed. Basically, and the pilots for UA-585, because they were so close to the ground, they were a thousand feet from the ground, they had no way to recover, even if they knew. But US Air 427, had they had the prior knowledge, they could have recovered. And part of that was they would have had to use... Their other flight control systems that were in the um, their control column, <laughs> like there's a technical term, <laughs> it's like yes. steering in their, wheel <laughs> in their control column. Yeah, yes. so they would have had to use the full extent of their control column to recover from the quote upset. And that takes a lot of force, actually. But that's also not what you're inclined to do when you're experiencing rudder hardover. You think use the rudder. So they would have had ha- had to previously have the knowledge and training in order to recover from that. So To know N- that the rudder could have been reversed and yep. to use the other rudder pedal. So the NTSB did not blame the pilots all because they weren't trained for it. It wasn't their fault. Nope. They had nope. no idea that was a, a factor. They nope. had basically zero time to consider it. And that's all I got. We'll get more into this in a minute. So like you had said before, at the beginning of your part, they had a pilot this time to talk to. They had a whole flight crew to talk to. They had people on board to talk to. And so they did, and they interviewed the pilot and got his whole story. And they were he was able to tell them that the rudder pedals felt physically stiff. He was standing on them, and he couldn't get it to do anything. And not only was he able to tell them that, but he was able to tell them exactly how the airplane behaved they weren't entirely sure how the airplane got into the situation it was in just based on the data that they had from previous ones but in this case he was able to tell them it yawed first and then rolled and that was interesting to them because that definitely pointed to a rudder problem definitively more so than they even had in any one of the other two plus they were able to rule out weather in this situation is there any other flight control that controls yaw nope Okay. There are not. That is the one. So that is definitively the rudder. 
So in talking to him, they were able to pinpoint a lot of these situations and bring it down to that servo valve. Now, there's a lot of people these days that still don't think it was the servo valve, but they just don't have anything better to go on. It's mysterious, sure, but it's true. That is what we have to go on. And they proved that it jams. Yeah, like what else would it have been? Like... Those people who think that, give me information on what you think it is, because they did a bunch of testing on a whole bunch of stuff. They did five years of tests. So many tests, and they they couldn't figure out a way other than the servo valve jamming to have this happen. Right. Well, and then not only that, but when they plugged in their values, assuming the servo valve jammed, plus an... each instance's individual, like the rotor, the wake turbulence, whatever, the best match simulation was within plus or minus one degree of each positioning of the plane. That's as close as they could get was with those values. So I don't know what else would have given them a best match simulation scenario. Right. And I think the ultimate thing is that they, because they, I mean, they proved that that's what's happening with the servo valve, but because they couldn't prove that that's exactly what happened in that flight. And there's so many other things that happened on the other two, UA-585 and US Air 427, that they don't believe that that scenario is the only thing that happened to those airplanes. Even though they proved that the servo valve jamming has no evidence that it jammed. Right. It literally doesn't leave any evidence behind that that's what happened, which is exactly what was left. In all of... In all of that confusion, here's something that I read in in U.S. Air 427's report that isn't covered in any of the anywhere, to be honest. There are 16 more occurrences of the 737 having this problem, and all of them are with the older servo valves on the older 737s. Did they just not have casualties like Correct. this one? They didn't. They weren't complete loss of control casualty problems but they were quite a few of them were actually complaints about pilots on the ground that then turned the airplane back around went back to the gate and said we're not flying this airplane so they would replace the servo valve some of them were pilots that got into the air and then said we felt a thump and the plane kicked to the right and that was enough for them to go nope not gonna fly this airplane so they turned around went back they had the the servo valve replaced and there were some that were just maintenance checks. They went in to check the, the rudders, and while they were doing a maintenance check, it would suddenly get really stiff on them. How would that happen, though, if it wasn't thermally shocked? Right, and that's just it. That's why a lot of people, this is what I'm leading to, is I got people it. believe that this isn't what happened because there's other things that can cause it to get stiff. Now, that may be the case, but still, there's a problem with that tight tolerance on the servo valve because it was proving to be a problem with stiff rudders. No matter what. And so they were able to attribute so many other incidents to the same issue. That said, this same airplane that we're talking about in Eastwind 517, one month before the incident, with the same crew on board... The same captain. The same captain and the same flight attendant had the same problem with a different servo valve. They replaced it. They replaced that servo valve as soon as they landed. They they complained that there was a kick. It had a pretty decent roll to the right, but it wasn't anything they couldn't recover from. They didn't need to declare an emergency. They landed the airplane, reported it to maintenance. Maintenance replaced the servo valve, and then one month later had this 
intense role in this horrible incident, and they managed to land from it safely. But so they had to declare emergency. So did they put an, an old servo valve in the plane? They did not. It was brand new. No, I thought they put in uh, one that was made before 1989. It was one from before 1989, so it but it was new to it, them because this is 1996. So it had not been used yet, but it was produced prior to 1989, so it still had the tight tolerances. I would not consider that new, but that's just me. It's just been sitting on a shelf for seven years. But it's new. So Well, but if you didn't know the problem was before 1989, you wouldn't think that a new one that hasn't been used would have any problem whatsoever. I guess that's true. Real quick, before you go on. Yes. They covered this in the episode, but I don't remember what... Where the metal chips from? They don't know, actually. I thought they covered where they came from in the episode. Mm-mm, nope, it was undetermined. No. It was undetermined where they, where came they came from. <laughs> it was undetermined where they came from, but it was determined that were not they were not a factor. Oh, aside from because they were filtered a out area. Well, because they this, were filtered th- out. Yes, but the chips also still occurred in later servo valves. But because they didn't have as tight of tolerances, it didn't matter. I'm still curious on what where those chips came from. I get that. I know. I feel like the chips <laughs> the other, should have been... Chips is also kind of a weird word to use because it gives you an idea of the size of it. They're probably more like slivers. They're tinier than that. They're I'm... so tiny that even when it jammed, it still didn't leave scratches. They had to use a microscope to see all of this, to see the chips, to see if there were scratches, all that. Considering... My guess is it came from a different part of the aircraft. Not necessarily, considering how many times the servo valve actuates, it probably takes off microscopic bits of metal. That's not unheard of. That makes sense. In any sense. Yeah. Which is also why it didn't leave scratches. But because the tolerance was fractions of a thousandth of an inch, that made it jam. It coupled with the thermal effects of materials, like, they expand, they contract. That's just what happens. So all three of those, the tolerance, the chips, and the thermal effects made it jam. But once they made that tolerance looser, they gave it more room to move, it didn't happen anymore. Plus, as we will get into later, they completely redesigned the servo valve later, so none of this was an issue. They did. But in the case of Eastwind... 517, what they believed actually saved the airplane in this incident is the fact that the captain had encountered this problem once before, a month earlier, on the same airplane. It turns out that that airplane had been written up three times for that problem in the last month, for having a rudder problem. And because he had encountered the problem before, they believed that it made his reaction time quicker when... Oh, for sure. This happened, and he was off autopilot, so he already had his hands on the control column. So he was able to react as soon as something happened to the airplane and that actually allowed them to keep a decent amount amount enough of control to get them through a checklist and to get the airplane back to stable and then land it yeah they got pretty lucky well and with the other two accidents there was a bit of weather ish kind of stuff involved and so that probably didn't help with the it happening and then this other stuff's occurring and it's causing it to get worse. Well, and kind then of. 585 was a thousand feet above the ground. Right. right. It it's really so low. close. Both were on approach. All US three were Air, on approach. Yes. U.S. Air was higher than UA 585. Yep. But um, because they they had the wake turbulence on top of potentially, I guess, the jam of the servo valve, they wouldn't have, you know. 
I just, we have covered flights where we talk about how quick something happens. Like it took nine seconds for 585 to crash, but I can't imagine standing on a rudder pedal during flight 427 for 20 seconds and falling. Yeah. It's, It's tough to imagine, and it's also tough to imagine the sensory overload that happens in that moment because your body's experiencing so many G's. You're trying to stand on the pedal. You're trying to control the airplane. You're getting all these alarms. Air traffic control is trying to talk to you. You're getting lights, and the ground is approaching really quickly. They just didn't have time to think. But 20 seconds, like when your adrenaline's rushing, that it is a feels long like a long time. time. But they still didn't have enough time to figure it out. Nope. And it's too bad. They didn't have the resources to. Right. So that said, at the time of these incidents, Boeing was developing the 737NG, the, the next generation series, which would have been the 600, 700, and 800. They're a newer version of the 737 that's still very much flying today. Are 600 still flying? There's a handful of them, Yes. That are still flying. Most of them are in Canada, belong to WestJet. Oh, got it. (laughs) But anyways, so there is only so much of this going on with the old airplanes. They were still concerned that, hey, you're building this new one. We need to make sure this isn't going to happen again. So with the new ones, the FAA and the NTSB went straight to Boeing and worked with them and said, hey, prove to us that this cannot happen again with your new 737s. Since you're starting from scratch, this needs to be a big thing. So they spent a lot of time and they did flight tests using the old servo valves, the new ones, and they did ground tests. They did all sorts of tests. They redesigned the servo valve to have a different tolerance and a different uh, design of the outer housing to prevent any of this from happening, basically, on the, the NGs. Plus... They have backups, fun fact. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah, so the 737NGs avoid this issue completely and everything going forward because they have backups and they redesigned it and Boeing proved it time and time again using their thermoshock tests, using flight tests, that this could not happen. So that's that. Um, do you want to get into findings? findings? Okay. This I'm is going to be a mess, but we're going to... It's a huge mess, because there's <laughs> findings from all three crashes in this one report. Right. I will do my best to... Um, narrate. N- narrate. It will... Translate. Translate these. Okay, so this is from the U.S. Air 427 report. The finalized report that happened after Eastwind. It's Eastwind, right? Yes. Eastwing, Eastwind. Eastwind, so, yep. I'm going to skip the first several because it's basically like... This was fine. This was fine. This was working. This wasn't a factor. Blah, blah, blah. So the first one will be... uh, Let's see. Although U.S. Air Flight 427 encountered turbulence from the Delta Flight 1083's wake vortices, which is the wake turbulence, the wake vortex encounter alone would not have caused the continued heading change that occurred after 1903 which means that alone could not have made the plane crash right there had to have been something else that happened that caused the plane to crash right and we knew yeah 1903 is talking about 703 p.m because the initial loss of control happened at 702 and 57 seconds so that's three seconds they had a brief little loss of control and then it just suddenly rolled and that wouldn't be enough for, you know, carrying on past the top of the minute, basically, they say, 
Continuing more than those few seconds shouldn't cause the airplane to completely lose control for the remaining 22 seconds or whatever. Yeah. At about 7.03 p.m., U.S. Air Flight 427's rudder deflected rapidly to the left and reached its left aerodynamic blowdown limit shortly thereafter. Basically, it went to the extent of its possible movement. And it it, it stayed that way, which caused the plane to roll, eventually invert, and crash. Right. And what you find out later is that the pilots were contributing to that by holding the right one in. Because they were reversed. Which actually meant that it was deflected left, because it was reversed. Yep. They can't, they can't definitively say that it was absolutely reversed in that situation, but what they did prove was that he was pushing on the right pedal, and it was deflected left. Yep. Okay, so here's the next one. Analysis of the human performance data shows that it is likely that the first officer made the first pilot control response to the upset event and manipulated the flight controls during the early stages of the accident sequence. Although it is likely that both pilots manipulated the flight controls later in the accident sequence, it is unlikely that the pilots simultaneously manipulated the controls, possibly opposing each other, during the critical period which the airplane yawed and rolled to the left, which means they don't think both pilots were, like, one of them wasn't pressing on the left rudder pedal and the other one was pressing on the right. Right. They didn't think they were manipulating the same thing at the same time, causing there to be a confusion with the flight controls. Right. One pilot went into control first, and then they believed that if the other one took control as well, that they were doing the same actions as the other pilot. They don't believe that that pilot was countering the other pilot. Which yeah. would make sense. Analysis of the human performance data, including the operational factors, does not support a scenario in which the flight crew of U.S. Air Flight 427 applied and held a full left rudder input until ground impact more than 20 seconds later. Right. Which means they don't think they were pressing on the left rudder pedal. No. Um, basically, as we found out, it's because they were reversed after it jammed. Analysis of the cockpit voice recorder, National Transportation Safety Board computer simulation, and human performance data, including operational factors, from the U.S. Air Flight 427 accident shows they were they are consistent with a rudder reversal, most likely caused by a jam of the main rudder power control unit servo valve secondary slide to the servo valve housing offset from its neutral position and over-travel of the primary slide. Yep. All of that big, long talk to say exactly what we said. So everything's consistent with it reversing in that of the three-part valve, the outer housing contracted on the the inner housings. The se- so I didn't specify before. So as I said, the inner one is the primary the next level is the secondary, and then there's the housing. Right. What jammed was between the secondary and the housing. Right. The next one I'm just going to summarize. It basically says that the crew of Flight 427 took immediate action but couldn't recover the plane after yep. it had rolled. Right. And they couldn't be expected to have assessed the flight control problem because they didn't know what was going on. That's the next one. Right. 20- they couldn't figure out that the controls were reversed with the little amount of time and little they knew about it like i said 22 seconds in absolute chaos it just doesn't the human condition won't let you correct that yeah the next one's about ua 585 it is very unlikely that the loss of control in the united flight 585 accident was the result of an encounter with a mountain rotor 
Which means it did not 100% have to do with the rotor. Even though it may have been there, it was not what caused it. They definitively, let me explain, they definitively proved that it was there, but it didn't cause it. It wasn't even a contributing factor. It just brought down the plane in the exact position that it was. Yeah. Yep. So it added to what was going on, but it wasn't what caused it. It literally just made the plane land in that exact spot in the park instead of 100 feet south or whatever. It still would have crashed. So it didn't even, like, accelerate anything? No. No. It literally just affected how much it turned, when it turned, and therefore where it landed. It did not cause it. Yeah. Analysis of the Cockpit Voice Recorder, National Transportation Safety Board Computer Simulation, and Human Performance Data, including the operational factors. From the United Airlines Flight 585 accident shows they are consistent with a rudder reversal, most likely caused by a jam of the main rudder power unit, servo valve secondary slide, to the servo valve housing offset from its neutral position to the over-travel of the primary. So they think the same thing that happened with U.S. Air happened to United 585, is what that says. Yep. The flight crew of UA 585 recognized the initial upset in a timely manner and tried to immediately fix the problem, but they could not. They could not be expected to figure out the issue with the flight controls. Same thing with the other one. Not in nine seconds. Yeah. They had no time to figure out what was going on. They would have no time to know that they were... They may have been pushing the plane into the ground as well, so it was not on the flight crew on why this plane uh, crashed. Training and piloting techniques developed as a result of the U.S. Air Flight 427 accident show that it is possible to counteract an uncommanded deflection of the rudder in most regions of the flight envelope. Such training was not yet developed and available to the flight crews of U.S. Air 427 and United Flight 585. They weren't available actually in Eastwind either. It was more his experience that contributed than anything. But yeah, basically it's saying these because this wasn't in the training to have a jammed rudder that they they had to take the time to figure out what was wrong rather than react based on training. Yeah. So the next one is basically the same as a couple of the other ones. East Wind Flight 517, the incident was a rudder reversal, and it had to do with the servo valve jamming. Right. It is possible that in the main rudder power control units from the U.S. Air 427, United Flight 585, and East Wind Flight 517 airplanes, as a result of some combination of tight clearances within the servo valve thermal effects particulate matter in the hydraulic fluid or other unknown factors. The servo valve secondary slide could jam to the servo valve housing at a position offset from its neutral position without leaving any obvious physical evidence and that combined with a rudder pedal input could have caused the rudder to move opposite to the direction recommended by the rudder pedal input. All of that to say exactly what we summed up. Yep. <laughs> God, they're wordy. They, they are wordy. <laughs> these, they, some of these, I'm like, just say what you mean. Technical I know, language. but it's, they it's can't. A, they're government. It's government, and it has to be a legal jargon. But also, yeah, I mean, they're saying that yes, it the thermal shock and the tight clearances in the middle chips cause this thing to jam and then reverse. Yes. 
The next one says that all three flights were most likely caused by the movement of the rudder surfaces to their blown down limits in a direction opposite to that commanded by the pilots. The rudder surfaces most likely moved as a result of jams of the secondary slides of the servo valve to the housing of the servo valve. Like, same thing again. Copy-paste. Yep. Which, speaking of, the whole bit in this report about U.S. or about United 585, they literally just copied and pasted it into the 2001 report of United 585. It doesn't surprise me. When completed... The rudder system design changes to the Boeing 737 should preclude the rudder reversal failure mode and most likely occurred in the U.S. Air Flight 427 and United Flight 585, along with the Eastwind Flight 517 incident. So basically it was like this shouldn't happen again because Boeing redid the servo valve. Rudder design changes to the Boeing 737 Next Generation Series airplanes and the changes currently being retrofitted on the remainder of the Boeing 737 fleet do not eliminate the possibility of other potential failure modes and malfunctions in the Boeing 737 rudder system that could lead to a loss of control. To be clear, in the United States, none of the U.S. carriers, apart from a charter company called Swift Air, operate the original versions and classic versions of the 737 any longer in airline transport. So, in other words, um, and this this discounts cargo because there are a couple airlines that do use them in cargo in the U.S. American, United, Delta, Southwest, and any of the other major airlines in the United States all operate a 737 NG fleet only. So, at this point, all the older 737s have either gone to airlines in other countries, been retired... Or in cargo operations instead. They are not in commercial flight in the United States. They are not in passenger commercial flight in the United States, correct? And what that finding says is it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen again. Which, yes, the rudder hard over could happen again. But now pilots have the training to address that. Right. An accident couldn't happen again. Right. The dual concentric servo valve used in all Boeing 737 main rudder power control units, is not reliably redundant. Right. So this is where they call out the fact that it didn't have a backup. A reliably redundant rudder actuation system is needed for the Boeing 737, despite significant improvements made to the system's design. Right. Which means they made the the give inside the servo valve bigger. Yep. But they needed to make another They needed to make a backup safeguard. system. Yeah. Basically. In case, even with that extra room, it's still jammed. The results of this investigation have disclosed that the Boeing 737 rudder system, designed certificated by the Federal Aviation Administration, is not reliably redundant. Yep, redundancy. Transport category airplanes should be shown to be capable of continued safe flight and landing after a jammed flight control in any position unless the jam can be shown to be extremely improbable. Right. So I'll get into this later, but basically they're saying that they need to demonstrate in certification that an airplane can be controlled even in a jammed situation. Unless it's too extreme. Right. Unless it's too extreme, but that extreme usually is improbable. Improbable. Which means there's probably something wrong with the maintenance of the airplane. Uh, That or it hit something. (laughs) That could be true. It hit something and part is gone. (laughs) That's extreme. (laughs) 
the that's part extreme. that made it redundant is now gone, so that's all you got. That's extreme, but it's amazing the number of times a part can be gone and an airplane still manages to land. I mean, you know, who knows? Who knows? We'll Pil- get into more of those flights. Yeah. yeah. Pilots would be more likely to recover sex- successfully from a uncommanded rudder reversal if they were provided the necessary knowledge, procedures, and training to counter such an event. Which means if they had had training that this could happen, they could have recovered. Right. Maybe not UA-585, because they were so close to the ground. They were close to the ground. But it's hard to say. It's hard to say, but the biggest thing is, as they state, uh, and the pilot states in East Wind 517, he does believe his experience helped him. Yes. And I mean, if you know what's if you know what's happening, you probably are going to be able to fix it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was going on. <laughs> a neutral rudder pedal position is not a valid indicator that the rudder reversal in the Boeing seven thirty seven has been relieved. Right. So, in other words, bringing the the pedals back to neutral may bring the rudder back to neutral, but that doesn't mean the reversal has gone away. Switched back. Yeah. It may still be reversed. They just may have gotten lucky that they didn't use the rudder again. Which is probably something they found in the five years of testing yes. after East yep. Wind. The training being provided to many Boeing 737 flight crews on the procedures for recovering from a jammed or restricted rudder, including a rudder reversal, is inadequate. So they needed to provide training in case this were to happen again. Right. The continued use by air carriers of airspeeds below the existing block maneuvering speed schedule presents an unacceptable hazard, and the existing block maneuvering speed for the flaps one configuration provides an inadequate margin of controllability in an event of a rudder hardover. So in other words, the airplane, based on the reference speeds given for flap speeds and for maneuvering speeds without flaps... Um, were too slow in all these situations in order to get adequate control input to correct for the problem. So did they increase reference speeds after this? That was a recommendation. Okay. The flight data recorder, or the FDR, upgrade modifications required by the Federal Aviation Administration for existing airplanes are inadequate because they do not require the FDR to be modified to record yaw damper command voltage, yaw damper and steady rudder on-off discrete indications, pitch trim, thrust, thrust reverser positions, leading and trailing edge flap positions, and pilot flight control input forces for control wheel, control column, and rudder pedals. Right, so they wanted a lot more parameters put on the flight recorders. Yeah. And fun fact, in one of these three incidents, it didn't record rudder data. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. It didn't record rudder input on the rudder pedals uh, versus rudder uh, direction. Hmm. Which we didn't really mention because it ultimately didn't have an effect on the outcome of the investigation. Right. It just made their job a little bit harder. Yes. So they asked that that be changed. Yep. Okay. On the basis of the rudder-related anomalies discussed in this report, flight data recorder, documentation of the yaw damper command voltage, yaw damper and standby rudder on-off discrete indications, and pilot flight control import forces for control wheel, control column, and rudder pedals is is especially important in the case of the 737, and these parameters should be sampled on 737 airplanes at frequent intervals to provide optimal documentation. 
So they want it to test more often and make sure that it's a maintenance issue. The Federal Aviation Administration's failure to require timely and aggressive action regarding enhanced flight data recorder recording capabilities, especially on Boeing 737 airplanes, has significantly hampered investigators in the prompt identification of potentially critical safety of flight conditions and in the development of recommendations to prevent future catastrophic accidents. This feels very judgmental. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It feels like the NTSB is really being really judgy because the FAA probably didn't want to mandate that the 737 get all these parameters on the flight data recorders because it takes, don't get me wrong, it takes an enormous amount of work for Boeing, for the FAA to regulate that, to making, to implementing it, to all these things. And it just seems like if they were able to determine these problems, the FAA is like, well, you figured it out based on the data you had, so why do you need it all? Because it took 10 years to figure out what happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's since, why. Well, and weren't there then, a bunch that were, like, a bunch of reports that didn't lead to accidents that were essentially, like, ignored Yeah, yeah, basically. Years. Basically. And since then, since then, this has changed. They now include all these parameters that have been mentioned, but I feel like that's it definitely important. feels like that was judgmental against the FAA. The NTSB was like, the FAA doesn't make our job easier. <laughs> <laughs> How dare they? In this case. Now, that's not always the case, because they do work together a lot, but... It still and seemed kind of whiny. It did, a little bit. Slightly, yes. So, that was the end of the findings. Thank God, there were so many of them. Yes. And a lot of them were, like, the same. <laughs> yes. And I think the all of them. probable cause between U.S. Air Flight yeah. 427 and UA-585 were the same? Uh, let me read it. I got a probable cause here. It's verbatim from the report. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the U.S. Air Flight 427 accident was a loss of control of the airplane, resulting from the movement of the rudder surface to its blown-down position. The rudder surface most likely deflected in a direction opposite to that commanded by the pilots as a result of the jam of the main rudder power control unit servo valve secondary slide to the servo valve housing offset from its neutral position and over travel of the primary slide. So basically, because exactly it jammed. Exactly what we said. Yeah. Yep. So I'll get into the recommendations on 427's report. And let I me have some of these Real up. quick, let me look up the probable cause in the other report. Yeah, go ahead and do the probable cause on the other one. And then I'll get I'm pretty sure it's the exact same thing. I have to find it. Give me a sec. So was there anything that happened with the, like, 16 other things? Like, was no. There, no, they're just, <laughs> no, like they're fine, all, we'll just fix it. They're all noted incidents, and in some cases they did have a board member from the NTSB come out to investigate but almost every time they determined it was a quote-unquote maintenance issue and they determined it wasn't an issue with the 737, they would say, oh, this is a minor maintenance problem replacing the servo valve, you're good to go. It's just an old worn-out servo valve. That ended up not being the case. Though it did happen to older servo valves, that doesn't mean that it's not it a problem. It was a wear and tear issue. Right, this became an, a very, very dangerous issue, but because so many of them had been happening it's during verbatim. maintenance things. It's literally verbatim. It is exactly like they, the same. It's like they deleted US Air 427 and inserted United United Airlines Flight 585. Yep. Well, yeah, you're I like, believe that. Your job is made a lot easier with fill-in-the-blank paperwork. Yeah, yeah they exactly, were like, right? we're just going to delete, 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 delete. 
United 585. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they did. Yep. That's hilarious. So well, were- and I said before, they copy and pasted. Like, why make your job hard? Be efficient. I mean, I get it. It was just really funny that literally it's verbatim the same thing. Work smarter, <laughs> not harder. That's right. So, I hate when people tell me that. It's like, I am working harder and smarter. <laughs> <laughs> so that said, the findings were not all of the same. Uh, US Air 427 included all three of them because the report was in 1999, so after all three incidents. And they managed to collect all of those and put them into one. UA 585, on the other hand, had a different set of findings that were related more to the weather and such on UA 585s. Plus, they did so many other things with that one that it, it warranted having its own set of findings as well. But the recommendations were also different, even in the final report of UA 585 versus 427. The recommendations for UA 585 mostly pertain to the recommendations given in 1992, based on everything they knew. And then there's a portion about the letter written letters written to the FAA in 1999 about recommended ADs that came from 427 and Eastwind. Which stands for Airworthiness Directives. Yep. For anyone who hasn't listened to our so previous So in other episodes. words, they wanted to put out an Airworthiness Directive for a handful of things, as well as some uh, service bulletins. It's like, here's some, some important information you, that should, you should know. you probably follow. Basically, you if, you do don't, if you don't do this, you can't fly the plane. Yeah, pretty yep. much. But that said, I went with the recommendations on US Air 427's report because they're short, relatively simple, to the point, and they are pretty clear on what they want. So I summarized these, and they include requiring all 737s to have a redundant rudder actuation system. So in other words, a secondary a system failsafe. to a safeguard, the, P- yeah. the PCU. In case something were to happen, there's backup. Yep. Required ensuring that all future transport airplanes certified by the FAA have a redundant rudder actuation system. So not just the 737, but everything from there forward that's certified by the FAA. That's a big one. For air transport. So air so air transport includes commercial, passenger aviation, and cargo. But not military. Not military, not personal, not general aviation, not business. Nope. Not experimental. Not experimental. Or rotor, or airship, or what else do you want? <laughs> Glider. There's more. I don't have to have one on my kite. No. no. Turns Darn. out, no, you don't. Oh. <laughs> Uh, requiring creating a test program with the 737 using old and new actuators to evaluate the risks and create further preventative measures for the PCU valves than even the ones recommended in the report. So in other words, they wanted a full test program, a flight test program, even developed by Boeing for this. That was like, can this happen? Does this happen? What's happening? Well, right. given that the 737 is the workhorse of the aviation industry. It does make some sense. Yeah. Yes. Yep. They recommended creating a certification criteria of transport type aircraft to include a safe flight under jammed flight control conditions situation. So in other words, they want a certification during uh, the test flight test program for a new aircraft to include making sure the airplane can fly safely under a jammed control situation like they had in these ones where they probably could have gotten out of it but making sure that that's within the tolerances. Is that certification performed in an in-flight test? Yep. They recommended doing it in flight tests, uh, as well as in simulators. I would hate to be that test pilot. Okay, but fun yeah, fact. Yeah, but if you knew what was going to happen, 
you'd be able Still. to pull out of it. That said, that brings up a good point. Eastwind 517, they then quarantined that airplane, used an old and a new servo valve, and the FAA and Boeing and Eastwind participated in flight tests using that airplane and were able to recreate some of the same conditions that occurred during the, the Eastwind 517 flight. And moreover, they were able to simulate some of those conditions and prove that you could safely get out of them. So I that's... would still freak out. I'd do. I'd be like, ah. I know they did it. In I know real what's flight. happening, but oh my gosh! The craziest thing is they did it in real flight with one of the airplanes that had actually happened to. Uh, yeah, it's probably because they were like, I mean, we already took the servo valve out of this airplane anyway. Might as let's well just try this again. This airplane. <laughs> Pretty much. Kudos to test pilots for doing the job we don't want to do. Yep, it's yeah, a, it's a risky one. But the thing is, they go into that situation very calculated, and they plan it all out, and they know exactly what to expect, so then they can counter right away. But still. Yeah. They recommended initiating a flight training program in the simulators of 737 operators to train for flight control jams. So in other words, just having all 737 operators train for a rudder jam and for other flight control jam situations that way they can counteract faster does no. it they know what's happening so they know what could happen does it recommend that for planes other than the 737 uh in this report it just specifically calls out 737 operators oh, okay but i believe that it's probably more standard than i'm that. sure they probably do it with all airplanes to be honest if it's standard in the 737 it's pretty much standard in everything else in, in boeing <laughs> in general yeah so they recommended requiring updates to include data for all flight control actuators on the flight data recorders, ensure that all 737 operators operating in airline transport flights include that those flight recorders in the airplane, and that those recorders record the parameters. Okay, I don't know if you caught that part, but they're saying that all 121 and 125, so air transport operators of commercial and cargo flights, those are... It's a confusing, confusing lingo, but basically passenger and cargo carriers that operate the 737 include flight data recorders. They specifically called out including them, period. If oh, you operate just those flights, that in there. <laughs> if you operate those flights, this must have come from some incident that didn't have any, but I couldn't yeah. specifically find anything in the report that called out one. They were like, you know who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, they said making it, it's it basically said enforcing that all operators of a 121 and 125 have flight data recorders. In case you don't already, right. you should. Right. I think um, they were required by the 90s. But they slipped that into the same bullet point as saying that they believe that all those recorders should include the parameters that we discussed earlier. Yeah, for all the, the ones that controls. needed to be added. Yeah. Right. And that's literally the last re the last recommendation. So that was on the 427 report in 1999, and then 10 years after UA 585, in 2001, they released the final report for UA 585 with an amendment to the final probable cause, and it was no longer undetermined, and it became the longest rec the longest investigation in NTSB history. They released and adopted it, meaning now if you just Google UA-585 report, you're not going to get the original one. It's actually kind of a pain in the butt to find the original one. You're going to find the 2001 report because they want that to be the one that you know that you see immediately. They because want that that's be... the most up-to-date and accurate report. They want that to be the one they all, that all operators follow. You can find the old one. Yep. It's still on their website. We have it. It's linked on the Wikipedia page for UA-585. 
I couldn't find it just by Googling. So if you want to look through it in all your wonderful, fun, free time, that's how I found it. It's yep. also probably on our website, Miranda. It should be, unless I put the wrong one up there. Which I didn't look. That's <laughs> possible, because I didn't know that, so, so I the, may have to change that. The original UA-585 report was like 160-something pages. The final UA-585 report was over 200 pages. And uh, US Air 427's report was 370 pages. Okay, so that was, I guess, kind of East Wind... 517, yep. And UA-585, and USA-427. It's basically just a a wrap-up. And 16 other 737 Yeah. That are unidentified. That was the 737 Rudder Hardover Upset series of accidents and and incidents. And as a matter of fact, if you look up 737 Rudder Hardover, that is specifically what they call the incident. That is the formal name for these conglomerations of problems the 737 had yeah it's a it is the formal name yep the 737 rudder hardovers thanks for listening thanks for putting up with our cliffhangers putting up with us in general emily thanks for for joining us i know it was mostly kind of hard to follow along maybe but you were you were cool you were quiet but you got to be here and try it out basically you're one of my best friends and i dragged you into this and i'm not sorry (laughs) I also didn't want to be home, so... That's valid. (laughs) (laughs) Who does? You're welcome anytime. We fed you, and you got to participate in the thing you listen to anyways. And and you can just chill and drink wine and listen to plane crashes. Out of awesome sippy cups. Yeah, we're we're still drinking out of the Crayola cups that we got from Minneapolis a couple months ago, which Emily was with us for, and then she broke hers. I didn't break mine. My roommate did, but granted, I was advising. He asked if the straw was dishwasher safe, and I was like, I don't see why not. I now see why not. (laughs) Well, now we know, so... It melted. It it does not say, for the record. It does not. In any case. Thanks, guys. Have a good rest of your week. We will... I want to say... I keep wanting to say we'll see you next week, but we don't see you. Listen to us next week. Yeah. Talk to you next week. That's right. All right. Have a good week. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.